Good morning, everyone. How are you? I'm leaving today for camp with your children. Uh, hopefully, you, you, if you are, are a parent of a youth camper, hopefully you bought them the smallest water gun available at the stores. Because those are really what's required, is the smallest water guns. I have a four-gallon water gun. And I'm ready for your children. Your children want to hit one person in the eyeball. That's me. But it's okay. I'm willing to take the, the bullet for you guys. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, thanks for coming. Uh, we're at the end of a series that we wanted to answer the question, what do you do when there's nothing you can do? When you're in a situation where there's literally nothing else you can do. And so we wanted to answer that question in our series, and we're going to close it out today. Um, you know, when that happens to people, and it happens to me, we can become angry. We can become angry with God for choosing this for our life. Why me? Why not somebody else? We can be tempted to run away and abandon our responsibility. Give in, give up, drink ourselves to oblivion. You know, in week one, we discovered the, that, that adversity does not equate to the absence of God. We talked about John the Baptist being in prison and Jesus not breaking him out of prison. If there's a guy you wanted in your ministry, it was John the Baptist. He would forcefully advance the kingdom. He was afraid of no one and went to prison and stayed there and died there. But God was not absent. God was not apathetic. Jesus, in fact, said that John the Baptist was the greatest man ever born. So we know that God loved him. And so we take comfort in that. When we're in the meantime waiting on God to do something, we can take comfort that God is not absent. He's not apathetic. He's involved. He cares. He loves you. And John's a good example of that. Then we talked about Lazarus. You know, Jesus loved Lazarus. And then when he found out that his good friend Lazarus was sick and was about to die, Jesus goes the other way and spends two more days away from Lazarus, and then Lazarus dies. And you know, at that time, they never seen someone come back from the dead. So they thought, Jesus, I thought you loved Lazarus. I thought you cared about him, and yet you went in the complete opposite direction. Again, another lesson for us to take comfort in. Jesus cared about John, Jesus cared about Lazarus, and both times he loved them, but both times they were left in a situation in the meantime, you know, they got to wait. Maybe they die. And that's in the meantime. It has nothing to do with how God feels about you. But we want to make that the issue. If we have a difficult time, we somehow think that God is angry at us. And a lot of times for us, it's what our, how our fathers treated us. And so we have that prism and, and we take that prism and we take it and, and we view God the same way. I'm here to tell you that God is not a bigger version of your earthly father. He's actually the perfect version of your earthly father. He's exactly what you want your father on earth to what it should have been like. But he wasn't. He's the perfect version. So in week one we covered that. 
Last week, we talked about one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith. The notion of receiving adversity that comes from the hand of God. Paul himself was given as a gift this thorn. And he received this adversity as a gift with a purpose and a promise. And for me, it's helpful to remember that the people in the Bible times and the authors that wrote these letters to people and the Christians that were involved in reading these letters, they were not strangers to the the in-the-meantime circumstances. They were in that a lot. In fact, the last book of the Bible is written to the church, the Revelation, because the Christians were 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 undergoing systematic statewide persecution. City officials, town officials, government officials, seizing property, killing Christians, making you uh, admit that Caesar is God, not Jesus. That's intense. And again, it has nothing to do with how God feels about you. But we want to make that the issue. I'm here to reverse that thinking. I'm here to convince you that that's not the reality in the spiritual world. That's our humanistic reflexes that come out. So Paul is the best example because he had an affliction he described as painful, humiliating, debilitating, and permanent. He asked God in three separate seasons to remove this thorn. And yet he claimed God's power and God's grace was sufficient for him. He goes as far as to say later on in another letter that we can find contentment in the meantime. And the problem with discontentment is that it could drive us towards self-destructive decisions and regrets. Because discontentment can be very, very dangerous. And it leads down a path with many regrets. So Paul's background is that he was a non-Christian Jew who embraced Jesus as his Lord and was called by God to take the message to a non-Jewish people throughout the Roman world. And ten years into this mission, Paul is arrested and he's sent to Rome on, for trial. Nero, the crazy emperor, is ruler of the Roman Empire. And it seemed that Rome had won and God had lost. The greatest missionary is now in prison. And you, you know, when we think about that, like, oh, his life is over. It's done. You go to jail, it's over. Well, not in this case. From Rome, Paul writes letters to encourage the churches. He writes the, the epistle to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and a letter to Philemon. Little did he know that these letters that he wrote from prison, in the meantime, waiting... There was no angel breaking him out of prison. Like like Peter got bailed out by an angel. That was pretty cool. Paul ends up being in prison and he doesn't get released. And eventually, he gets executed. Reminds me a little bit of John the Baptist. But while he's in the meantime, while he's in prison, he's writing to the churches in the meantime. And little did he know that these letters would shape the world. Ladies, 
The thing about the husbands should love their wives. Remember that famous phrase that you guys really like embrace? You're supposed to love me. Love me. It says to love me. It's commanded to love me. That's true. Paul wrote that from prison. Aren't you glad he went to prison? Paul's suffering gave some of the most insightful things on marriage. Husband, love your wives. Why? Because we love ourselves. God would tell us, stop loving yourself and love your wife. Alright? What are the odds of the first century letters from prison, what are the odds of that moment in time, his letters would shape the world? Philippians is written in response to a care package with money. Because they wanted to take care of Paul's needs while he was there. And in Philippians chapter 4 verse 10, he responds and he writes this letter. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. You know, I like how Paul writes that because when Paul goes on trial sometimes, there's no one, there's no Christians around supporting him in, in the courtroom. He's by himself. So he, he's thankful that the Philippians remember him and they send him a care package. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Wouldn't you like to learn that? I, I want to learn how to be content in whatever the circumstance. Not the, I'm happy about my circumstance. No, no, no. That's not what he's talking about. Not that, I wouldn't change it if you'd let me. No, not that either. To be content in this way means that I've learned to be self-sufficient in the sense of being able to resist the force, resist the pressure, resist the temptation brought by my circumstance. You know, when I went to visit Wayne in, in, in the hospital, there was nothing he could do but sit there and hope that his body responds to surgery. He was in the meantime. All he could do was sit there and hope that he heals. And hopefully that the infection and the medicine works. But there's nothing he could do. All we could do was pray. That's all he could do. And many times we see our friends and family in that situation. And it's in those situations that we're tempted with being annoyed and angry with God. And we, we forget that He wants us to learn to be content in whatever, to resist the force, to resist the pressure and the temptation brought on by that circumstance. Something inside will dictate my response to what's going on on the outside. Something inside. That's the, that's the learn to be content. We're going to get into that in a minute. He's going to tell you how to do it. Okay. So in verse 12. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. You know, Paul came from a very you know, prestigious life. He was a, a, a well-schooled in the Jewish religion. He was a Pharisee. His, he was a Roman citizen. He had privileges that most people didn't have. So he knew what it meant to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, 
whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. You know that word secret? It's the same Greek word they used for the initiation into a cult in the Roman Empire. And what Paul is saying is, I've been initiated into the cult of contentment. I've been initiated in this cult of being contempt. I mean, being content with my situation. That's the word he uses there. Because in the Roman world, that was, that was going on everywhere. It was cultic rituals going on. And he's using that language to illustrate to the Christians. And there was a fanaticism about being a part of a cult. It's fanatical. In Paul, you get the sense that he was fanatical about there's something that God has given me inside and it's his secret of being content in every situation. Whether you have plenty or whether you're in want. And then he tells us the how. The how is one of the most misused Bible phrases of all time. Okay? Before I tell you how, and how it's misused, i got to tell you that between 33 A.D. and 1450 A.D., no one had more influence on the world than Paul's writings. When the first uh, publishing, printing, copier machine was made, Paul's writings were one of the very first things that were printed. The Bible. He wrote half of the New Testament. He was the most influential man who lived during that time frame in history. You know what made this man so influential? Is what he wrote and then what he personally endured. It's one thing to write something like this. It's another one you know that he lived it and then he wrote it. There's a difference. You can give me theory, I want practical. Did you experience that? With someone who's been who has experienced something that before me, I'm all ears. Like, whoa, tell me about your experience. Someone who wrote a book at the library about it, I'm like, yeah, tell me about it. Yeah, just Facebook me. Post me in a private message. That's cool. I'll read about it later. But when you've experienced something and you're sharing something that I'm about to enter, I'm like, can you say that again? Can you repeat that slowly? Think of what hung on the balance of his willingness to endure hardship. I mean, divinely appointed hardship. And he's trying to lead the church. His response to adversity gave him and his message credibility. It was from, it was from that vantage point that Paul was able to impact the world. One of the most influential. So Paul tells us this. Here's the secret. Here's the how. I can do all this. I can suffer. I can handle the tension. I can handle the pressure. I can handle the temptation. I have the power. I have the personal resources required to endure and to press on anyway. Whether I'm in prison, whether I'm abandoned, whether I'm on a shipwreck, whether I'm in the ocean, whether I'm being betrayed by their own brothers, whether I'm scared... I can do all this through Him, God. Through Him. 
Later it says in manuscripts, it says Christ, but the earlier ones say through Him, God. Who gives me strength? I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. And then the world misapplies it by going, I can do all things, it's fourth and one. That's not what Paul's talking about, fourth and one. Winning a football game. He's talking about a situation where there's nothing you can do and your life hangs in the balance and there's pressure and there's tension and life's real. And we'll misapply by saying, man, Tom Brady did it. Because God gave him strength. That is not the intention of the passage. But this is what we like to do. We take something in the Bible and then we misapply it. So if you're familiar with the Bible and you misapply Scripture, you can miss the entire meaning of it. And you misapply it. Or the John 3.16 on a football game with the rainbow hair. It's crazy. But we see it all the time. Paul's point is that I can't do it. I can't do it. I've reached the end of my reserves. I'm at the end of my wits. I can't. He can. Christ didn't opt out when they got tense when He went to the cross. He can through me. I learned to rely on His strength in me. I can do all this through Him. Why learn the secret of contentment? Because discontentment can drive us towards self-destructive decisions. Paul is suffering. He's in prison. There's nothing he can do about it. He can't. But He can. That's the secret. Through Paul, God can endure the hardship. That's why you know people, and I know people, who have situations that is terrible, yet they have strength in their adversity. And I I hope I have that strength. I've not really hit an adversity where I'm like, oh my gosh. But I hope and pray that I'll have that strength one day to go to remember that going, when it hits, I know I can't, but He can. That's the secret. That's the secret. You know, sometimes when you're married and you're, and you're struggling with your spouse, and you're like, ay Dios mío. You're like, whoa, what, what is this? This is crazy. And you're at your wits end like, I can't. You're right, you can't. He can. Through you. Help you endure your situation. Or you see your kids struggling. You know, just last week Jaden bumped his head. He was fine. I knew he was fine, but you know, my son's a little dramatic. I don't know where he gets it from. <laughs> it's gonna be alright. It's gonna be great. You know, I, I had no legs to stand on because I've misdiagnosed my son twice. So, um, 
one time he hurt his arm at a wrestling practice, and I thought he just hyperextended it, which all kids do and all athletes do. Shake it off, and let's go home and have some dinner. You'll be fine. He kept crying in the car. I said, son, stop your crying. You're not hurt. Okay, it's time to... Man that up. Okay, you can cry because you, you can cry because your feelings are hurt, but you know that stuff. You know you can suck that in. So Karen insists that I take him to the hospital. So I do. Begrudgingly, take him in, and then he has a fractured humerus. Okay, Jaden, sounds like you broke your arm. All right. I think I learned. We go to soccer practice a year later and he falls down. Like, you know, he, gets, he just trips over, lands on his arms, and he goes, oh, my arm hurts. I'm like, son, I looked at his arm. There's no deformity. <laughs> he's, 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 can, can you move your hands? Check for circulation. You're solid, bro. You're solid. Suck that in. Suck that in, bro. Suck that in. Okay, you're on the pitch, 110%. It's like, Dad, it really hurts, though. I can't. I was like, it looks fine. Again, my wife persists. Take him to the doctor's. And I was like, dramatic, I'll take him. You know the copay on that. Did you understand the copay on that? <laughs> take him in. He's got this buckle fracture because his bone was pressed inward. And his bone was so, his moldables because he's young. And it buckled, but I couldn't see it under the skin. But his bone buckled. And it's like a, it's like a big lump. But you, I couldn't really tell. You couldn't see it on the arm, but you saw it on the x-ray. And I was like, is that somebody else's x-ray? <laughs> And Karen gives you the look. I'm like. So when he hurt his head, I knew he wasn't hurt. I'm like, I have no credibility. She goes, take him to the hospital. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We're going to the hospital. We're good. We're good. We're good. Great. Because I had no credibility. Discontentment can drive you towards self-destructive decisions and regrets. You know when you're single and you're tired of waiting for Mr. and Mrs. Wright? And you're discontent? And you make a decision that will alter your life forever. I'm all for getting married. Don't get me wrong. Or when you're pregnant and raising a child hurts your dreams. You have these other dreams and you have a child now. Your dream wasn't have a child. Or you're miserable without your boyfriend or girlfriend. But going back to her or him is this crazy dynamic that drives you nuts and hurts you all the time. But you you're miserable without her. Or your situation at home makes you want to run. You wanna you just want to leave. You know, you could do that when you're single, you can like leave your household. Leave your parents' house. When you're married, it's like you can't leave. You're like, you gotta come back. I mean, you go to the grocery store to cool off, but you gotta come back with something. Some milk. I was out. Oreo cookies, whatever. You come back. You have to come back. Or maybe it's your health or your career. You have no idea what hangs in the balance of your decision to learn the secret of contentment. So I want you to say I want you to take something with you this morning. If you can, I want you to say this out loud to yourself once a week. I can't. You can. Simple. I can't, 
You can. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Don't say it during a football game. Say it about your situation. Your real life situation. Not watching millionaires on the TV set play football. Your situation. The realness of it. The tension that's at home. When you, want, when you, when you have a, a struggle to be humble. I can't. You can't. In the meantime, learn the secret of contentment. Christ in you, empowering you. Look at it that way. He's empowering you. You know when you empower your children to go to do a task? I'm going to give you the decision-making authority to do this. I'm empowering you. You know when you're given a responsibility at work, you feel empowered? That feeling of, I can do this! That's the feeling. God empowers you. And as we pray to close out our service, I want you to think about your primary source of discontentment. I want you to picture that person. Don't look to the right or the left. Just picture in your mind. Just look straight and picture. I want to cause a fight at church. Just look straight and go, okay, I have the picture. Think about the person, or maybe it's your profession. Maybe it's your performance. Whatever. You can't. He can. He will through you. God will through you. Not somebody else. You. And I want you to concentrate on that one thing. That one set of circumstances. The person, the pressure you long to escape. Your source of discontentment. I want you to think about that. And on the authority of God, who loves you, while you're in the meantime, and the Son, who lives in you, as Peter said, I want you to know, you can't. He can. He will. If you invite Him to. You have to invite God to empower you. And in the meantime, learn the secret of contentment. Christ in you, empowering you. Let's pray together. God, thanks so much for Paul. Thanks for the letters. Thanks for him going to prison. Thanks for his suffering and his example that he writes these letters to us through the Holy Spirit. To give us the secret on being content. The secret of, I can't, you can. You will. We invite you into our lives to empower us. To take on our situation, our source of discontentment. So that God, we can understand and we can live a life worthy of the calling. We pray for the camp this week, youth camp. Over 315 kids going to come. It's going to be exciting for them. We hope and pray that the seeds of your word will be planted in their hearts and it will grow up and rise up and one day they'll want to decide to be in a relationship with you. We pray for Wayne as he's recovering from home that you heal him. For anyone else who has an in the meantime circumstance that you would give them the strength and the empowerment to endure and to resist the temptation 
of really looking at you as a source of discouragement, but empowerment instead. That you're going to work through their lives. And for all the people who are seeking you, God, that we can reach out this summer to them. That we can extend the invitation. That the, that the Bible is practical and is very helpful for all. Thank you so much. In Jesus' let me pray.